Well, if you have stepped into the doors of a modern evangelical church these days, you might be surprised to see what goes on Sunday after Sunday. I remember a few years ago, maybe quite a few years ago, a uh, ad coming to our front door uh, for a church that was in our area, a secret church, and I was truly appalled at what I saw. They were trying to basically manipulate unbelievers to come to their church. Uh, come enjoy Starbucks, Krispy Kreme donuts, rockin' music. You know, and it just appalled me because that's not the intent of the church. Uh, the church is for believers to gather together to be built up. And if perhaps an unbeliever comes in and hears the word, they might fall down on their knees and repent. But, and then we are built up to go into the world. But we see this, and I have uh, no doubt that that church uh, at that time, I don't know about it now, was true to their advertisement. This is what they did. There's many uh, discouraging stories these days about leadership in modern evangelical churches uh, trying to woo and manipulate people to get them into the church so that they can, quote, get them saved and then work them around like a baseball dime, whatever it might be, to get them right with the Lord. But the reality is uh, the way that we grow is not uh, ordained through man's wisdom, God has made it clear in his word how we grow in our walk with him. And so today we're going to take a little break from our psalms and we're going to take a look in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And would you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3? And we're going to look at a passage that I like to share every once in a while. It's very important. It's, It's foundational for us. And we're going to see how we grow in our relationship with Christ. And we know this, but yet we need to be reminded because our growth in Christ is an everyday thing. You see, when we forget God's principles, when we forget his truth on a practical basis, uh, we then end up being stunted in our walk with the Lord. And we need to be reminded of those things. So that's what we're going to see today. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're looking at verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to give you a brief context of this uh, wonderful book. Uh, we see in second or in chapter 1, verse 2, that Paul is writing to Timothy. And what do we know about Timothy? Timothy uh, was a native of either Derby or Lystra, and uh, those are two little towns in Galatian province. Uh, he was, uh, his, his mother was a Jew by the name of Eunice, his grandmother Lois. Uh, they were both saved, and evidently his father was a Greek. Now, we know that because he had not been circumcised when he joined the Apostle Paul, which is an indication that he was probably educated under Greek culture. We also know from chapter 1, verse 3, that he was also informally instructed or educated from his mother and grandmother, and he learned the truths concerning salvation through faith in Jesus Christ from the scriptures they shared with him. Now, that's a good grandmother. That's a good mother that shares the truth of God with those children, with their kids, and we see it with Timothy. Now, although we don't know the exact time Timothy came to Christ, we know that his grandmother and mother most likely laid the foundation or it happened with them. But we do know that by the time that he met Paul in uh, Acts 16, that he had become a disciple and was such a proven young man that Paul wanted to take him along with him uh, on his journey. Now, Timothy was quite... uh, Actually, I don't think we know how much Timothy was a part of the Apostle Paul's life. 
Uh, he speaks of him as his son in the Lord, his son in the faith, his true child, his brother, his co-worker, his fellow servant, his fellow slave. Timothy was close to the Apostle Paul. He was with Paul in Philippi and Thessalonica, in Berea, in Corinth, in Ephesus and Rome. And he was associated with Paul in his writings of First and Second Thessalonians, Second Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians. And when Paul wrote Romans, Timothy was there, as we see as well. Timothy was of great use to the Apostle Paul. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. He was willing to do anything the Apostle Paul wanted him to do in the Lord. And he was of great use and great, uh, it was a, a blessing to the Apostle Paul. Now, what do we know about the book of 2 Timothy? As I've shared, it was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to Timothy and most likely written sometime around 66, 67 A.D. The Apostle Paul, chapter 1, verse 16, is imprisoned uh, falsely as a criminal, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He's likely under house arrest uh, in Rome, as we see, in, and this is not that we see in the end of Rome. This is not what we see in the end of uh, uh, Acts, where he was under house arrest. This was actually during Nero's great persecution. And apparently the Apostle Paul understood uh, that he was probably going to be executed soon. Look at Second Timothy chapter 4 for a moment. Just uh, page over a little bit to verse 5. The Apostle Paul shares, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And he says, make every effort to come to me soon. The Apostle Paul was was uh, aware by the Lord that his time for his going to the Lord had come. And this historically puts this, uh, the beheading of Paul by Nero sometime around 66, 67 AD. So that's right around when this was written. And this letter, uh, we have here are the Apostle Paul's last words to his true child in the faith. Just think about it. If you have ministered dearly with someone year after year after year, they've been faithful in the Lord and you're sharing your last words from them. This is very important. It's very important. They're his last words to his beloved bondservant. The most important thing Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, wants to tell Timothy before he dies. And when this, within this letter, it's, the letter is woven through. It has warnings concerning threats to the Word of God and contrasts with exhortations to those threats, to guard, to retain, to entrust a faithful man, to handle accurately, to teach correct, to continue and preach the Word of God the tremendous uh, exhortations in light of the threats that are there. In chapter 1, Timothy was encouraged concerning his faith, his, his calling, and was encouraged not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and of Paul, his servant, but instead to retain the standard of sound words and to guard the treasure that had been entrusted to him, even in the midst of persecution. In chapter 2, uh, we see... Timothy was encouraged to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, to entrust the word of God to faithful men who will teach others, to suffer hardship, to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And then, as we remember, as, uh, as 
as a, as a servant of Christ, as he suffers, that he would suffer also. And as Paul was imprisoned, that although he was imprisoned, the word of God was not imprisoned. And Timothy was further encouraged to not wrangle about words, but be a workman of the word, unashamed, handling accurately God's truth. And he was to avoid ungodly and worldly talk, which spread like gangrene. And although a large house has many vessels, honorable and dishonorable, he was exhorted to be an honorable vessel, a useful vessel, having fled youthful lusts, not being quarrelsome but gentle, correcting those in opposition. And then in chapter 3, we see the horrifying reality that difficult times will come. And so with that in mind, let's read chapter 3 together. Turn back to the beginning of the chapter that we're looking at. And Paul tells Timothy, but realize this. You've got to realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And he's going to explain. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, at that point you'd say that was Adolf Hitler's family, right? I don't know. That sounds like the most evil people in the world, doesn't it? But notice what it says here. He says here, holding to a form of godliness. These are people who are these this wicked, but yet they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And avoid such men as these. Avoid them. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led by various impulses, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Very interesting. They're gaining knowledge in a sense, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth. He says here, And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as, as, of that, as, of, as also that of those to came to be. But you, the contrast here, but you, and he's speaking to Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, again he's speaking to Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then our passage, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. In contrast to the bad guys, Timothy, in contrast to them, follow Paul's example. Continue in the things that you have learned, and he's speaking of the word of God, 
of the Word of God. And as I shared, that brings us to our passage where we see so clearly, as I just read, and I want to read it again, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. These are Paul's last words to Timothy. These wonderful verses are really the key to ministry. The key to what should be going on in churches. The key to what pastors should be doing. The key to what we should be receiving. And here we're going to be reminded today of the nature of his word and the nature of its profitability and the purpose that God has ordained. So first of all, let's take a look at the nature of his word. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Now, as I mentioned, these verses are not isolated. They're not an isolated set. Now, we memorize verses. We have certain verses we memorize and praise the Lord for that. But we do need to understand the context in which these verses have come. I just shared it with you a minute ago. The contrast is evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And the implications, they're going to do things that twist and, and manipulate the word of God or pretend to be those who are from God. But you, Timothy, you stick with the word of God because all scripture is inspired by God. It's God's word. It's God's word. He says all scripture is God's very word. It's God's word. It's inspired by God. Now the word scripture here is the word, comes from the Greek word graphe. It speaks of the written word. And that's important. We see the word scripture speaks of the written word. It's where we get our English word uh, graphite from, where we have pencils. So we get that understanding of writing. Now we need to realize in context that verse 16 is the word of God. Notice what he says in verse 15. He talks about the sacred writings, the hieros, grammata, sacred or holy writings. Scripture is the written word. It's God's word as we will see. And he says all scripture is inspired by God. Theonustos, it is, it is literally God-breathed, God-breathed. Some translations even translate it that way. All scripture is God-breathed. The implication is it's come from his mouth. He has spoken it. He is the one who has spoken what has been recorded in his word. It is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and not some... But all Scripture is. All Scripture is. And we have some problems. Non-believers, they will take up a little Scripture here and there and say, I like that one, that's good for me. No, like that one, that's not very good. They don't believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. As we'll see, they don't have the Spirit of God. But then we as believers can get caught up in sin where we believe all Scripture is inspired by God, but yet we don't believe it personally in certain areas or aspects of our lives because of the difficulty it might bring about if I was to obey or follow those truths. But the reality is, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now at this point, there would be some who say, well, he's only speaking of the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been completely written right now. Well, we know certainly the Old Testament was breathed out by God. 
We know that God, in many ways, in many portions, uh, through the fathers, from the prophets, spoke and now has spoken to his son, through his son, Hebrews chapter 1. We know, as we saw in Romans chapter 1, that uh, the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was recorded in the Word of God. Recorded in the Word of God. And we know that the Lord Jesus himself relays that the Old Testament are the Scriptures, the written Word of God. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 24. And this is uh, the Lord Jesus graciously coming upon those disciples who had uh, left Jerusalem on the third day and were talking about the resurrection, but yet didn't believe it. And Jesus came alongside them. Isn't that wonderful? Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in what? In all the scriptures. And look down a little farther, verse 32. And they said to one another, this is after Lord Jesus had disappeared from their sight of revealing himself to them. And they said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining what? The scriptures to us and then look at verse 44 now he said to them this is jesus these are my words which i spoke to you while i was still with you that in that all things that are written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled all things that were written about me and then it says then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures john 5:39, jesus uh, reproves the, the Jews. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. You search the written word, but it bears witness of me. So then all scripture is God-breathed. It is from his mouth. It is his word. Now some people say, okay, I buy the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, Look back at first, hold your fingers in 2 Timothy and go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, he says, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. One's an Old Testament quote, and the second one, the laborer is worthy of his wages, is from the Gospel of Luke. So he's even relaying to Timothy back earlier that that is the scriptures also. So then... The Apostle Paul is no way limiting the scriptures by putting in this modifier. The term all means all. All scriptures inspired by God. And even in 2 Peter chapter 3, we have the Apostle Peter speaking of Paul's writings as scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3. Turn there. 2 Peter chapter 3. It says 2 Peter 3.15 and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some of them are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, implying that his word is the scriptures, to their own destruction. 
Indeed, when the Apostle Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, rebuking them concerning their pride, he made it clear that his word, 1 Corinthians 14, was the Lord's commandments. Let, one, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14. So then all scripture, New and Old Testament, is literally God-breathed. But you might say, how did God do that? How did God bring forth his word and put it on paper? Didn't man write the word of God? Didn't man do it? How is it God's word on paper? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, excuse me. 2 Peter 1, just verse, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God inspired men to speak his word. Men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. We have the tremendous reality that it is the Spirit of God that brought about the word of God through his willing servants. So here we have God who had moved men to speak by his spirit, his word, and thus all scripture is God-breathed. And folks, we have the completed word of God. We have the word once for all delivered to the saints in Jude. Jude 1.3. We have the warning in Revelation chapter 22 to not add or subtract from God's word. All scripture is literally God-breathed. It's God's word. And indeed, in 1 Peter chapter 4, those who had speaking gifts were to speak as they were the utterances of God. They were to speak God's word. Speak God's word. And if you've genuinely been saved, you'll receive God's word as what it really is. And those who share it will rejoice over that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Praise the Lord, you received it as God's word for what it really is. What it really is. It's from him. It's from him. And on a side note, if you don't believe the word of God, you're not a believer. If you don't accept the word of God, you're not his child. You see, the true believer accepts the word of God. In fact, this is an indicator of whether one is saved. It's not the only indicator, but it's one indicator. In John 10, Jesus makes it clear, my sheep hear my voice and I, and I know them and they follow me. In 1 John chapter 4, we have a test that shows whether someone knows the Lord or not based on their receptance of the apostles' writing, which is Scripture. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Praise the Lord for that. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. You could classify churches that way, by the way. And the world listens to them, okay? We, speaking of the apostles, this is John, are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how you can know it. Very clear. 
If someone says, I, I believe Jesus' word, but I don't believe Paul. I don't like that. They don't accept the word of God. They're not saved. They need Jesus. They need the gospel. Because then when they receive Christ as Lord and Savior, as they believe in him, they'll receive the spirit of God, and then they will understand and accept the word of God. So then, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, for those of you who are believers, you'll never grow in your relationship with the Lord unless you have an accurate and high view of God's word. Not an idolatrous view of it, by the way. There's a lot of idolatry with God's word around. Talking about a real, accurate view of this word coming from the living God and who it's coming from and what it does. All scripture is literally God-breathed. So in contrast to the wicked deceivers who are wrangling about words, bringing about all sorts of junk and stories, uh, we see the first element of the nature of God's word is that it is literally God-breathed. And let me show you this. If you're going to a church that uh, is not focused on Christ through the proclamation of his word by his spirit, rightly divided, dependent on him, you're being duped and being deceived. In contrast to all the false teachers and wicked deceiving men, it is scripture upon the humble, receptive heart that God uses to make us like Christ. So we need to be reminded that every word is God's word. It's from God. He's declaring it to us. And our response will be an evidence of where we are at with him, where we are at. So then, all scripture is literally breathed by him. Now notice we're going to get into some understandings of what it does for us. Notice, first of all, it's profitable. All scripture is inspired by God and... Second nature, characteristic of it, inspired, God-breathed, and profitable. All Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is profitable. Those two things. The term profitable speaks of that which is helpful, that which yields advantageous results or returns. All Scripture is beneficial. It is profitable. Now, it's not all Scripture in terms of like the word and, right? (laughs) It's, it's, it's the word in its intent. God speaks to us. He is the living God. He speaks to us through his word. And when it's rightly understood in its right context, we see that as intended by the spirit of God, it is profitable. All of it yields advantageous uh, results. So many Christians seeking that which they think is spiritually profitable, yet they're from other things than God's word. It doesn't say all worship music is profitable. It doesn't say all uh, whatever it might be is profitable. All scripture is profitable. Yes, we praise the Lord and we sing praises to him, but it is the scripture that is profitable. So where do you go to get your spiritual needs met? Is it to the Lord through his word by faith? To the Lord through his word by faith? You know, do you go to the word expecting to hear from him, desiring to hear from him, wanting him to speak to you through his word specifically? All scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable, profitable. Now, not only is it God-breathed and profitable, it also does things. It has some things that are done. What is it profitable for? 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for one, for teaching, two, for reproof, three, for correction, four, for training in righteousness. Four things that scripture leads to advantageous or beneficial results. You have this term four here. Now, some uh, translations only put one four in and then have the ands. Four, four teaching and reproof. And, they, and I don't think that's a good translation. Because the original language, it says pros. It's profitable unto this, pros, unto this, pros, unto this. There's an emphasis on each specific area. It is profitable for each one of these things. Each one of these things. It's important to realize that every scripture, the scripture written, original language, original manuscripts, brings out pros, these four things. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, 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 for. Now what is it profitable for? Notice first of all, it is profitable for teaching. For teaching. The Greek uh, word translated teaching here is didaskalia. And it primarily refers to that which is taught. That which is taught. It's often translated doctrine. Doctrine. And doctrine sounds like a fancy theological word, but it simply means that which is taught. There's bad doctrine and there's good doctrine. There are doctrines of demons. There, there's true doctrine. There's, there's healthy doctrine. That which is taught. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That's our word. That which is taught. Written for doctrine. The scriptures are where we find our instruction. Don't go, if someone wants to instruct you in, in terms of your walk with Christ and everything that's pertaining to life and Godness, don't go anywhere else than the word of God. All scriptures inspired by God. It's profitable for this. It's profitable for our teaching. For teaching. It's where we find our instruction. Now, the Bible does reveal there are doctrines of men, doctrines of demon. There's sound or healthy teaching or doctrine. There's unsound and unhealthy teaching and doctrine. And there's all kinds of wicked teaching out there going on. Doctrines of demons and men taught as though, teaching them as though they are doctrines of God. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. Actually, don't turn to Matthew 15. I'm going to read that. Turn to, back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll read Matthew 15 for you. Speaking of the Pharisees, uh, Matthew 15, and I'll read this for you, verse 8. This people, or the, or the, the people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, taking man's wisdom and teaching it as though it's God's instruction now first timothy chapter 4 verse 1 but the spirit explicitly says now i find it so interesting people you know will understand this when they look at it here on paper but when it happens around them they don't accept it we need to apply the word of god to what god says will happen notice what he says he says but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith that means they're in the faith quote unquote but they're going to fall away from it in a sense. And he says here, a fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And he's going to explain what those were here. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron 
And here's one of the doctrines of demons, men who forbid marriage, an advocate abstaining from certain foods. It's a doctrine of demons to say this food's bad or evil. Now you could say, I don't like that. I don't like uh, uh, Brussels sprouts or whatever. That's fine. But saying it is evil versus good. There are foods that are more spiritual than not spiritual. Notice what he says here. That's a doctrine of demons. He says here, for everything, excuse me, um, back, uh, advocated and then abstaining from foods from which God has created gratefully be shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified, it's, it's set apart by means of the word and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and a sound doctrine which you've been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. Don't get involved in that, that, that junk, Timothy. Doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. Indeed, there are those who twist scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's turn her. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. Excuse me, I said Timothy. 2 Peter. We're already at 2 Timothy 3. Thank you for that. 2, Timothy, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote you, also in his letters, speaking of the things which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. And he says, notice, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this before and knowing they're going to take the difficult passages and they're going to distort them. They're going to take the ones that are hard to understand. He says, be on your guard, lest being carried away, lest being guard, lest being carried away by the air of unprincipled men, you fall from your un, from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. The reality is there's bad doctrine out there. There's twisted scriptures, there's unsound doctrine. They're doctrines of demons and men. We are not to listen to that. But the word of God, all scripture, rightly divided, is to be that which is taught. That's why we teach the word of God in everything we do. There's nothing else to teach. What an arrogant, pompous uh, fool I would be to, to teach you anything other than the word of God. The reality is, that's what grows us. That's what's profitable, as we'll see. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. It's the framework for what is taught. And brothers and sisters, we're living in a time of, the, of a church apostatizing before our eyes. Before our eyes. And there are those apostates and those deceived who go in these wicked evangelical and denominational churches that they go to those churches that are led by ungodly men to have their ears tickled because they can no longer endure or sit under or remain under sound teaching, instruction, or doctrine. 
Timothy's going to say that a little farther on, right after our passage. Very interesting. Right after our passage, after he says all Scripture, he says what it is, he goes right into it, then preach it, Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Now, he just said what it was, all Scripture, didn't he? Okay? Be ready in season and out of season. And we're out of season, brothers and sisters. I'll tell you that right now. Reprove, exhort, or excuse me, prove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. You should be reproved. You should be exhorted. You should be, uh, ex- you should be, uh, rebuked and exhorted. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, and it has come, by the way. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths or stories. It's happening wholeheartedly. And the people that give those myths and stories out are evil men and women. Evil. So Timothy is solemnly charged to preach the word in light of the nature of the word. And what a sad thing in churches these days, stories and video clips rather than sound doctrine, a verse here and there just sprinkled in to make it sound biblical. And lately I'm seeing a trend here of churches that are rebounding the other way from secret churches. The word's taught, but yet it's not taught rightly in many many theologically incorrect, unsound, not divided rightly through systems of theology rather than the word coming forth as it was intended. The focus on man or man's reason or ability to comprehend rather than man's total inability to receive the word apart from dependence on Christ. We need to realize that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching that which is taught. Have you placed yourself under sound doctrine, biblical instruction? Have you put yourself under places that you've had your ears tickled and thought, well, that wasn't so great? You need to repent. I shouldn't have been there. I should have walked out of there. When we were looking for churches here when we first came here, we walked out of many. We left them. No good. They're not teaching the Word of God. So then, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching. Now notice, it's not only profitable for teaching, it's profitable for one other thing. Actually, there's there's three more. For reproof. For reproof. All scripture is profitable for reproof. The term proselegmon, reproof, speaks of bringing to light, exposing, exposing, setting it forth. God's word is advantageous to bring to light or expose our sinfulness. And we are sinful. We are sinful. We mess up. We fail. And God's word exposes that. And we need it desperately. We need to be reproved. Some people know all the truth and have it all down, but they're never reproved. We need to be reproved. We need to be, be willing to have a heart that recognizes our, our, our sinfulness, to allow God's word to expose that, to expose that. And how delighted Satan must be when God's word is watered down and there's no reproof. There's no conviction. You can come to a church service and never be convicted of sin. Walk out feeling just happy as a clam. What a shame. But Scripture is profitable for reproof. 
And this term reproof is, 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 is interestingly put in, in parallel with the truth about the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16. And when he comes, he will convict or reprove the world of sin. Paul told Titus in the context of speaking God's word to reprove with all authority. Titus 2.15, these things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. Expose it with all authority. Let no one (coughs) disregard you. Yet how much reproof do we hear these days? Yet if God's word is being taught rightly and rightly divided, there's going to be reproof. If people are preaching the word, they are to be reproving with the word of God. And folks, if I'm not reproved as I study, and if I'm not reproved while I'm preaching, something is wrong. We need to be reproved, because God's word reproves. I need to be reproved, you need to be reproved, we're all sinful, we need God to expose it. Now I could go through a myriad of passages that speak of reproof, but I want to look at a few. First of all, I want to look in the Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Because if you're going to notice and see that, you know, true believers are those who are reprovable. Not reprovable by somebody coming along saying something specifically. I'm not talking about external reproof at this point. Yes, there is reproof from those who come alongside. I'm talking about God's word working on your heart and causing you to be exposed and go, wow, that was wrong. My attitude was wrong. What I just said was wrong. What, what I, my attitude towards them or whatever it might be. I'm exposed. I'm exposed. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity and scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? This is wisdom personified speaking. It's like God's, God's wisdom is his word, but it's personified. It's, it's calling out. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour my spirit out of you. I'll make my words known to you. But notice this, this, this uh, contrast. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will even laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when your distress and anguish comes on you, then they will call on me and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive shall kill them. The complacency of fools shall destroy them. But he who listens to me, that's wisdom, lives securely and shall be at the ease, shall be at ease of the dread of evil. A little farther up, uh, Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Don't reject it. God disciplines us. He reproves us. If you're a true believer, you realize, oh man, this is wrong. Lord, I, I, it's, you're exposed, you're humbled, and you confess it. Proverbs 5.11, he says, And you groan in your latter end when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say how I have hated instruction, how I spurned reproof, how I, listened to, how I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly of the congregation. 
And I'm going to go up to 29, but I'll come back to 10. Chapter 29, verse 1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Proverbs 10.7, he who is on the path of life heeds instruction. But he who forsakes, and it's in parallel, reproof goes astray. If you're on the path of life, you're accepting, you're heeding God's instruction and reproof. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. We're not to call people stupid, but God calls people stupid. If you hate reproof, you are stupid. That's what God says. Proverbs thirteen eighteen: Poverty and shame will come to he who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Proverbs fifteen eleven or fifteen ten: Stern discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates reproof will die. Proverbs fifteen thirty one. He whose ear listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 15.32, He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof requires understanding. Do you let God's word reprove you? That's what God intends it for. It's, It's profitable. It brings advantageous. It will do it. But what's your response? Because we do mess up. And we need to let God's word be dwelling richly in us. So we, like I said, examples, you think the wrong thing. Nope, wrong. It exposes it. The wrong attitude towards someone. Nope, that's wrong. Things are being said. Nope, that's wrong. It's profitable for reproof. Profitable for reproof. If you're a true child of God, you're going to listen to reproof. And the way God brings it forth is through his word. All scripture all scripture and i'm to preach it preach the word be ready in season out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction now given the process of being approved is not so fun at times sometimes it is you know well no no, it isn't fun i mean it's the result is you know when when god exposes in you wow you're just thinking the wrong way praise the lord you did that right that but sometimes we get exposed and it's not fun it's not fun. But we need to recognize that God is doing this for our good. And if we're willing to accept his reproof, then he will also correct us. And that's the third item in our passage back in Second Timothy chapter 3, the third item that God's word is profitable for. He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For correction. The term correction is a cognate of a few Greek words put together. Ep anathorsin. Epi upon, ana, again, authoro, to make straight. We get our word orthotics, or not orthotics, but orthopedics, right? <laughs> orthotics are for your feet, right? Um, orthopedics. The term ortho, this, this idea meant to make straight again. It spoke of setting a bone that was broken. To make it straight, setting something upright which had fallen over. To make straight again, to repair, for instance, like a broken arm, whatever it might be, to make it straight again. And God's word, for those who will receive its correct or reproof, uh, God's word will also make us straight. It will correct us. And that's where the joy is, getting our hearts back on track. So many people get reproved and they get sour or whatever it might be. Or get let Satan get a foothold, whatever it might be. But if you let God's word go past that, it will also correct you. 
it will make straight again. And what a wonderful thing that God does not leave us at that point of being exposed in sin. When we confess that sin and we get right with him, he corrects us. He makes us straight again. It's a gracious, gracious God. Correction is Scripture's positive provision for those who will accept its negative reproof. What a wonderful thing when God makes us straight again. We are broken with sin, then God exposes the break and within our sinful thoughts and actions, and he sets it and straightens us again. Isn't that wonderful? Let me ask you this. Have you placed yourself under position to be convicted and corrected? Are you reading, studying, meditating on the Word of God? Yes, praise the Lord, we're hearing it right now, but are you letting it get through and penetrate your heart? We're sinful and we need God's Word to change us, and this is how He does it. Now, not only does it do those three things, notice there's one last thing it does. All Scripture is inspired by God and prophet for teaching, for approval, for correction, for training in righteousness. Kind of interesting. We think of training like training for, you know, a running race or football game or whatever it might be. But here, God's word puts us in training camp for righteousness. It trains us for training in righteousness. The word translated training here is, comes from the Greek word paideia, uh, and it comes from, derived from the Greek word also, pais, which means child. We get our word pedo, or the Greek word pedo, we get our word children from that, or pediatrics. And paideia basically means to educate or train children. To educate or train children. God's word is profitable for training us as his children, right? For training us, for educating us. And that education comes in different forms. Comes in different forms of training, instruction, or correction. This word is often translated discipline here. This word training is often translated discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. And it's what God is doing through Christ in us. Titus chapter 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Then this is our word, instructing us, training us, child training us. God's grace through the person of Jesus Christ is child training us to do what? To deny ungodly. He's training us to say no to sin and to worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what he's doing through his word. He's training us. He's training us. It's profitable for training. But what is it profitable for child training in? Notice it says righteousness. The term righteousness speaks of rightness or uprightness. And we know that righteousness, in a sense, is the standing that God imparts to us through faith in Jesus Christ. He is righteous and just, the justifier of us. He is the just and the justifier. He's righteous. And when we trust in Jesus Christ by faith, we receive his righteous standing. But practically speaking, we are not righteous yet. We sin on a daily basis, and so God is in the process of training us or sanctifying us to make us more, practically speaking, righteous each day, more like his son Jesus. And he does that through his word. God's word is profitable for training in righteousness. We need it. That's what's going on in our lives. All the stuff that's going on, believe me, like all the stuff I had, the physical trials, all the stuff for me this week, God's training in righteousness. 
And that comes in all kinds of different forms. Now, God is so gracious, he lovingly uses his word to train us in righteousness. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, that's, this is the Lord's Prayer, John 17, by the way. He says, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. Sanctify them in, in the word, thy word is truth. We know, as I read earlier in Titus, that God's word through Christ instructs us to deny ungodliness. We know that we also get spanked. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline or child training for the moment does not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, you got to let God train you by it. If you don't, you're in trouble. Afterwards, not during, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, you were sinning and God had to spank you. Because he doesn't want you to sin in that way anymore. And so he spanks us so that we will then do the right thing as we trust him. And there's peace in that. There's peace in that. He trains us in righteousness. We have all scriptures profitable for training in righteousness. Do you see why Satan has so subtly infiltrated the church with these fakers who say Jesus here and Jesus there, yet don't preach and teach the word of God? So that God's people are not built up and, and trained. God's people are not convicted. They're not corrected. They're, they're staying in their sin and they're thinking they're okay. And that's the worst. You know, someone who thinks they're right with God and is still in their sin is, is a problem. Or someone who thinks they're walking holy with God, but yet they're not dealing with sin... There's a problem. We get that in churches, right? The Pharisees thought they were clean as could be, right? No. It's the Word of God that exposes. It's the Word of God that corrects. It's the Word of God that trains, and it's that which we should have taught thoroughly in every aspect of what we do. So then, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But it doesn't stop there. We must understand that it has a profitability or a purpose unto something. Unto something. Verse 17, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So is the profitability of Scripture to puff us up and make us look spiritual? No. Is it to make us look outwardly righteous? No. Is it to make me feel good? Nope. I mean, God is good, but... Is it to meet our felt needs? No, it's sorry to make you laugh there, but <laughs> that's what happens when you don't get much sleep. But, uh, but it's profitable. Here we see that the man of God would be adequate, equipped for every good work. That, the purpose, the purpose. Now notice, he clarifies something, that the man of God... He's speaking to believers, not speaking of just men, it's speaking of men and women. But those who are gods, those who are following him, there he is, they're believers. God's word is not profitable for these things on a total level for non-believers. God's word exposes sin and the, the Savior, Jesus Christ, for non-believers. The gospel does. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. This is for believers. It's proper that the man of God may be adequate. Adequate. Now, it's interesting, the grammar in here is interesting, because 
that the man of God may be, and it's a present subjunctive, continually habitually adequate, um, equipped, and that's a perfect passive, which means having been thoroughly equipped, and it's done and it still affects you now. So then, that the man of God would be continually habitually adequate all the time because they have been thoroughly equipped in the past and that affects them now. So then, you see that God's desires that the man of God would be continually habitually adequate. Now this term adequate speaks of to be fit, to be complete, to be sufficient, to be completely qualified, to meet the demands that uh, something calls upon one to do. You see, God wants to equip us for everything. Equip us for everything we need. And he makes us adequate through his word. His word makes us adequate. You see? Now, it doesn't mean we're adequate in our own strength. It means we trust him more and more. When God's word is working in you, boy, you're depending on him more and more. And you're walking with him more and more and more. See, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us adequate to what He has called us to do. You want to be an adequate spouse? Read the Word of God. And not just simply about marriage, about everything. Just fill your heart with it. Fill your heart with God's Word. Let it flow in the way you interact with your spouse. Let it flow and let it do what it does. Oops, that's a bad... My attitude was wrong here. Reproved, right? Corrected, I'm sorry, right? Confessing it, right? Trained, recognizing, learning, no, I'm not going to act this way next time. It's not right. Thank you, Lord. It's inadequate for every good work. You see, we have a sufficient, all-sufficient, we have an all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, and God's Word points us to Him. He is our adequacy. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. And you see, when we trust in the Lord, we allow his word to work in us, he makes the man or woman of God adequate. Adequate. Having been equipped. It, you've been equipped in the past by the word, and it affects you now. And that term equipped spoke of, a, of something being completely furnished or outfitted or supplied. It speaks of a rescue boat that was completely fitted or a, or a wagon. It had everything it needed to do the task at hand. And what are we equipped for? Every good work. God's word from his very mouth has a purpose. And it's spoken here. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for approval, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be continually habitually adequate, sufficient for the demands, having been in the past and it still affects you now, fully furnished, equipped for every good Deed. Indeed, we were saved under that. Some people don't even know why they were saved because they're not understanding the truth of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is very gracious. He has prepared us for good works that as we allow his word to equip us, we walk into it on a daily basis on our way to glory, right? Tremendous reality. When the apostle Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, what does he commend them to? 
I commend you to this and this and this and this and this. No, he says, and now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. To God and his word. To God and his word. You see, when we abide in Christ and his word in us and step out in obedience and faith, God produces those good works that he has ordained for us to walk in. And this is when we bear fruit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But when we abide in him, his word in us, we bear much fruit. Now, it's his fruit. We not, you know, we kind of don't really know what fruit looks like. We look at the way the world thinks of fruit or bad churches thinks of fruit. This is the fruit of his character manifest in our interactions on a daily basis. We see that in those good works that he has laid before us. So then, how are we to bear fruit? Well, it's really clear. It's the word of God that God uses to equip us for every good work. And when we're equipped for every good work, we're adequate continually habitually. Let me ask you, are you adequate continually habitually? At times, I don't feel so. And that's when the word is lacking in me applying it through his spirit in the circumstance, whatever it might be. And God is gracious to use that to convict me, maybe to to reprove me, to correct me. God's word is everything that we need because it's his very word out of his mouth to us. So then how do we grow in our relationship with Christ? How are we equipped for everything? It's God through his word, his living and abiding word, his wonderful word, and that's what should be taught. It's his wonderful word that convicts and corrects and trains in righteousness that we would be Adequate, having been equipped for every good work. Well, let me ask you this. Are you being equipped? Are you allowing God's word to do its work in you? You can harden your heart. You can let it, let it do it where it's nice and fun. You enjoy it. But when it doesn't come with what I like, you let it go. No. Are you letting it convict you of attitudes, actions, whatever it might be? Are you letting God's word, God through his word on a daily basis speak to you? It's God's word. He's speaking to you. Are you letting it happen? The more we do so, the more we're going to be like Christ. The more we like him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And we need it desperately. And all hell doesn't want us to, to look at it. To submit to you through it. Lord, I thank you for what you've brought forth in your word today. And I pray that we as a church would never turn away from knowing and understanding and proclaiming the sufficiency of your son Jesus through his word. That we would in everything recognize that you have brought forth your word and you have told us what it is profitable for and that we would not seek anything else. And Lord, I do just pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who is recognizing that God's word is not at work in them and that maybe they don't know you. I pray that they would turn and trust in your son Jesus to be saved. And then for those of us who know you, I pray we'd allow your word to do its work in our lives, that we would have soft um, receptive hearts, humble hearts that humble ourselves before you, receiving your instruction 
your reproof, your correction, your training in righteousness so that we would walk in those good works that you have prepared beforehand. Thank you, Lord God, for this morning and for your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.